Welcome to the Finding From the Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie GG, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. If you like what you hear today, visit my Fertile Ground Communications page on Patreon and find out how you can support my work. As a writer and marketing communications coach, I'm fascinated by stories. I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help with your website, marketing materials, or any kind of document, look us up on fertilegroundcommunications.com. I have a passion for companies that care and give back to their communities. So I'm starting a new podcast, Companies That Care, to highlight those leaders in the industry. If you know of someone who's leading a company that is changing the world in the areas of sustainability, philanthropy, community involvement, or diversity, equity, and inclusion, please send me their name. I'd love to interview them. On to today's episode. This is the final week of my Healing Herself series, as we share stories from four women who have survived body issues, sexual assault, shame, and trauma. Today, I'm honored to host Stephanie Bonastia, who suffered from eating disorders, including bulimia, binge eating, and orthorexia for over 20 years. After decades of extensive therapy, she created her own formula for healing and made a full recovery all while raising three kids and working full-time. She started her own business to help others do the same. Now she feels more awake in her 40s than ever before. I posted photos and further details about Stephanie on my website, including links to her website. You can find the background details at www.fertilegroundcommunications.com on the podcast tab. Now, welcome Stephanie. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yes. Let's start by talking about your life beginnings. What was your childhood like? Well, I'm the oldest of three kids. I have a younger sister and a younger brother. So I was raised pretty conventionally. I have parents that were married throughout my whole life. They're still married. And I mean, I wouldn't say there was anything particularly outstanding about my upbringing until I probably about until I got to high school, at which point my father changed jobs and I had to move to a different state for my senior year of high school, which was really difficult for me. And that, I don't know, that's, I guess, my earliest memory of things sort of getting a little bit unstable for me. And uh, my whole family was sort of going through that together. And I think it rocked all of our boats. And I think it changed us at that particular incident. But, but prior to that, it was pretty normal with the exception of, I guess, my father. He's Italian and he's pretty set in his Italian ways. And I was raised in a household that was very traditional in terms of male and female gender roles. Oh, interesting. Like your, you, your mom and your sisters, and you had to do all the cooking and chores, that kind of thing. Yes, um, yes, for sure. I mean, that was definitely one. But also, it was directly stated that, you know, women had certain roles and expectations. And part of that was appearance, and that men had sort of more privileges and expectations as well, which I think affected my brother. And my father was, and still continues to be, pretty dominant and does not really accept anything that veers, you know, that, that challenges his authority. 
So as a kid, this was something that I just completely ingested and did not question because he's my dad. And that's just the way that life, I, I, you know, I assumed this was just it. And I now, you know, after I, you know, I'm 41 and I am just now in the past several years, I've come to a place where I started to question a lot of things that I just implicitly just believe to be true about being a woman and also just patterns of oppression and the fact that my father is perhaps not always correct. <laughs> um, so that's been interesting. And he was pretty volatile when I was growing up. So I would say that was another piece of my upbringing that stands out to me that continued to affect, I think, everything in terms of my relationship with myself and other people. And yeah, just sort of a, a general heightened nervous system based on his volatility when we were growing up. Yeah, you have a similar birth order story that I do as well, because I'm the oldest of three with a younger brother and sister as well. Mm. I don't know, it's probably my personality. I really resisted against my father. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, and I don't know You're why. Smart. I'm just wired differently, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So he grew up on a farm with like four brothers, and he mm. expected when he would tell us to do something, he would expect that we would do it. And of course, I would yeah. always rebel and push back <sighs> in soft ways. I mean, I... I was kind of, in a way, I was kind of a good girl as well, you know, mm -hmm. but I would push back. I would want to be asked to do a chore instead of be told to do a chore. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I get mom, it. Yes. And my mom was much more likely to say, you know, would you clean out the dishwasher where my dad would try, he would try to, to give us directions. And I would, <laughs> I, it was all about tone for me, you know, the yeah. way, you know. For sure. So. That is really interesting. I find that what you're describing is something I, I, immer I, I grew into. Now I am that way. I am extremely vocal with him now. But in my upbringing, I was shy, quiet, did the right thing, didn't make waves. That was what I did. Yeah. So <laughs> to survive, it sounds like I did. Yeah. yeah. And how is yeah. your father reacting to you pushing back now? It's hard. I met with a lot of resistance. And I'm also met with resistance from my brother, who adopted this role as the other male in the house. And, you know, I'm sort of labeled now. And I'm okay with it, though. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think anytime that I tried to be more vocal or outspoken, it was just like, I was just condemned as being a feminist, which was a bad word. And just all around, just a little bit of name calling. So so now that I completely speak my <laughs> my opinions, and I certainly beat my own drum now. And okay. I mean, you know, with a fan family it's like well you're not fulfilling your role anymore in our <laughs> in our circle of we, so who are we then if you're this person and yeah. that is certainly I see that playing out all the time. Okay. So it can be a little bit tricky, but I'm sort of learning how to navigate, you know, what's worth the argument and what isn't and sort of cherry picking my my battles. So what kind of messages did you get about your weight when you were growing up? Well, interestingly, my father was extremely um, overweight. He was always dieting. He was always, you know, Nutrisystem and any diet, any diet that came out, he was doing and it never worked. And he grew bigger and bigger and bigger throughout my whole life. My mother had a very normal relationship with food, didn't struggle with it too much. I must have inherited my father's judgment of food because it, it, as he was getting larger, he would try to control us. Mm -hmm. So we were taught that we shouldn't eat too much. And especially the girls don't eat. Uh, he would sort of side glance and like tisk tisk if you had dessert or if your portion was a little too big or if you showed any evidence of like wanting more than he thought was reasonable 
even as growing kids, I saw that and I ingested that. And there was an element of like, you you can't get too big or you're not attractive. And I sort of, I was like, I, I mean, as a kid, I wasn't like a skinny kid, but I also I was pretty average. But, at, you know, around the time where you start to go through puberty, you get you gain a little weight. And I understand now that this is completely normal and expected and should not be interfered with. But at the time, I started to gain a little weight. And I remember hearing comments about that. And I then took it the other way and ended up dieting to the point where I became anorexic at the age of 16. And what happened when you became anorexic? Did you end up going into therapy for that? Later. At first, as eating disorders sometimes, you know, they, they, they tend to, as long as you're not emaciated, uh-huh. it's not seen as a problem. So yeah. I was crossing the line to getting like alarmingly thin. My lower body was always a little bit bigger than my upper body. So my upper body would have qualified as pretty alarming, but my lower body didn't. It just became really lean. So I don't think anybody saw it as an actual problem. So I got away with it for a really long time. It later morphed into binge eating. And that is when later, you know, and bulimia actually, and I eventually asked for help, but I had to ask for it quite a lot. Oh, you did. And how old were you when that happened? I was just about just turning 18. So my couple years that I had restricted and I now, I mean, I was never diagnosed with anorexia, but I know now that that's what was happening. I started one day (laughs) binging. It was literally one day. I remember it. Um, I opened the fridge and my mom's macaroni salad was in there. And I felt this like primal urge to go for it. And I did. After that, that was how I I began this pattern of, of binge eating and bulimia. I could never quite get back to the anorexic behaviors that I like thought that I needed to like get back to some level of like control and will. I was just willpower. It worked the first time. Why isn't it working now? So I went into college with this really significant bulimia, I guess, at the time. But my parents were just kind of like happy that I was putting the weight back on because I had gotten you know, a little too thin. So they just saw it as, oh, you're just, you're normalizing and this is fine. And I would say, no, I'm not. I'm really, really in trouble. Like I'm struggling and I'm really, really miserable. And actually it was my sophomore year of college that I showed up. I left my campus and I showed back up home and I said, I, I, I signed out of school. I need help because I didn't think I was being heard that I really needed the help. So I, I arranged everything myself and I wow. went back home you know, that's when I started therapy for it. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting because my sophomore year of college, my roommate was anorexic and she had a very similar story. She, I think that her parents might've done some sort of intervention with her. I'm not, I don't remember exactly what happened, but she also left college, you know, after one semester, you know, she actually transferred to another college here in Portland and was able to finish out and became a nurse. But yeah, there's something about that age, I guess that yeah. that's, that's so sad that you had to do it yourself. Oh, Yeah, I think at the time, I mean, we're talking 20 years ago, even more now. So I think it's talked about a lot more now than it was then, and especially binge eating. And I think that if you couldn't see an eating disorder, you kind of didn't have one. I think now there's more of an understanding that this is a like an an insidious sort of maybe it doesn't present the way that we've, we've been trained to think it presents. I think there's more of an openness to that. But I think my parents were just really desperate for me to just normalize. They just wanted me to be okay. And, you know, I was in college and it was like, okay, she's fine now. She's fine now. But I wasn't. And I knew that I needed help. And I just 
there was concern. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that there was nothing on their end. I mean, they, they understood that I was struggling with something. I just don't think they understood the severity of it. Well, I think the other challenge with people of eating disorders is that when they start losing weight, then they get so many positive comments. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming that that happened to you as well. You probably got a lot of yeah. comments. Initially. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Comments that stay with me to this day, in- including comments from well-intentioned friends of theirs. I mean, I remember my, you know, my parents were very social. They have lots of friends and, and I, and our old neighbors had come over one, one day, this is before I had gone off to college. And she took one look at me and she said, Oh, look at you. There's not an ounce of fat on you. And there wasn't, I mean, there was not an ounce. And she said it with such longing, like, Oh, you're so good. You know, I got that a lot. Like you're so good. And I think all of that feedback from adults, you know, I did get the feedback from my peers as well. There was a lot more acceptance happening there. But when I was getting this feedback from adults, I mean, I just, okay, this is good. This is what I'm, this is what I've been missing. And this is clearly the way to get noticed and the way to get approved of. And why didn't I do this a long time ago? You know, that was sort of the message I got. And I still remember a lot of those comments and I still think about them. I don't think they'll ever be completely erased. So I'm very, and part of my work now is is education around the way that we complement weight loss like it's nothing and yeah. like it's the most uh, admirable thing that we can do and right. how damaging that is, especially yeah. to adolescents. Yeah. And because I know people who have had eating disorders, I'm very careful when somebody loses weight not mm. to say anything. I mean, I might say, oh, you look great, but I don't say it as if, you know, yeah, you're right. you know, if you've had any kind of cyclic, you know, weight issues yourself, then you, you know, I've often thought, well, what did I look like before? <laughs> exactly. Says, you know, it's like, hmm. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and I think back to when I was young, I probably looked anorexic because I was very skinny, but I also had, I was born with a cleft lip and a cleft palate. And I had an overbite and a lot of orthodontia issues. And I was a very slow eater. So I was just naturally really mm. skinny. But I remember a woman who, you know, was not, she was not really even a family friend. She was an acquaintance, made a comment to my mom that I should really pull in my stomach. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. And this woman was actually overweight. Yeah, so, well, that happens a lot. Yeah, yeah, I know. And I remember being really offended by this. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Who is she to say this, you know? And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's so sad, the kinds of messages that we send young people, especially, and people of all ages, really. All ages, yeah, it, it just continues with us. Yeah, and it's this moral failing if you've gained weight. Or if somebody, do, or if somebody once told you, oh, you look great, and then the next time they see you, you suddenly... You know, if you've if you've cycled, you know, it's like all of a sudden you're not getting those comments anymore, and you're basically taking that to mean oh, I I must look really bad now. That's playing on us as as women, I believe, really strongly. And but it's kind of the water that we swim in because I I don't think that we know any. I mean, of course we of course we compliment weight loss because weight loss is the goal, right? Like that's kind of just the that is the message. So. I look a lot harder at that and and in terms of what that's really doing and what that's saying to everyone really about how, what their, what people's um, conditions of being accepted are and how there are sort of like conditions. So you said that you had therapy, you had decades of therapy. This continued Mm -hmm. for quite some time then. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I, once I did start therapy, that was, I was around, I guess, 19, I ended up going into a treatment center for a while. And I actually met a therapist there who ended up, who ended up, I would say, I mean, this therapist has a special place in my heart just because it was the first person that I explored a lot of 
a lot of things, I guess, that, that I had never really thought about before, about my upbringing, about my sense of self and all these things. Yeah. It did not improve my symptoms. Therapy for the 20 years that I was, in, that I went to therapy, never helped my symptoms of binge eating. But I found a lot of value in it because I just got to know myself better. And it gave me a place to vent and it gave me a place to explore a lot of things that I was burying. So emotionally, it was great. But I struggled through the age of 38, through having kids. I mean, during my pregnancies, I was still going to therapy, but I was still binging and even purging. And well, we can get to that. But uh, but but yeah, therapy through my 20s and 30s was mostly focused on or it was focused on the eating, but it never touched it. I basically just thought I'm broken. There is nothing that there is no amount of of anything that seems to fix me. And if there you know, if this intense amount of therapy isn't doing it, what will and sort of I was resigned to to just going to therapy, but understanding that this was not something that therapy could solve. That's really sad. Let's talk a little bit about when you were pregnant. I know that can be mm. really hard for women who have eating disorders. Yeah. So I got pregnant with my first daughter when I was, I think I was 30 when I got pregnant. And I was terrified of my body changing. But I also, I kind of also saw it as like permission for my body to change. So I think that I did relax around the rules that I had built around eating because at this point I'd had, um, I'd been binging and purging, but I, I identified more as a binge eater because I, that was what was happening most of the time. I had a whole bunch of rules around what I was allowed to eat or not allowed to eat and ultimately would break all the rules and binge. But I set up these binges by giving myself parameters of what was acceptable for me to eat and, and how much. And they, they were there were dire consequences to, you know, to not following these rules. So when I got pregnant, it was like, well, I'm supposed to gain weight now. And I'm, I need to nourish the child, you know, this growing baby. So I can't be doing these things. Like I, I can't engage in these behaviors so drastically. So I did allow myself to eat more. And I think that as a result of actually relaxing the rules, that's why I ended up having less symptoms during my pregnancies. However, they did not go away entirely. And so I think I guess it was more in the beginning trimesters. I, I maybe it was also because I had a lot of emotional upheaval, but you know, I mean, hormonal upheaval, but I would still, I, I remember still binging and then purging because I was in such excruciating pain from the binges and I would actually purge. And that only fueled my shame. So, I mean, the shame you feel when you purge when you're pregnant is incredible. I just took it as more evidence that I was like heinously broken, that I would do that with a, with a, you know, while I was pregnant. And I, I did end up tempering that that did end up going away as the pregnancy progressed, but not entirely. And yeah, that's that. I don't think I've said that out loud to anyone except for my husband, but it's true. And it's, it's what I did. And, you know, my kids are all healthy and well, you know, and I was eating enough. It was just that I would binge to the point of incredible pain. And you know, how when you're pregnant, you get fuller faster. So it would just be this like, I mean, I was just on the floor in discomfort and I would purge to release some of it. Did you have any problems with your teeth or other parts of your body through the purging? 
No, I didn't. Um, I knew about that as a risk and it did not matter, but no, it did not manifest. I didn't get any like acid reflux. I didn't get anything. Yeah, I didn't. And I think that's also attributed to the fact that I wasn't chronically purging for the entirety of 20 years. I was occasionally doing that and I would, I would use compulsive exercise. And I also used laxatives at one point Uh as a way to manage, as a way to purge. So I sort of did it all. I would also fast in between binges as a way to, that's now qualified as a form of purging. So I would binge and then I would starve and then I would binge and then I would starve. So that was my form of bulimia that that didn't require me to purge constantly. What are the effects of eating disorders on a person's self-esteem and sense of self? I don't know if this is a chicken or the egg, really. I don't know if I didn't have the self-esteem to begin with. I certainly don't think I had the sense of self. And I think that that goes back to being younger. And I was, by nature, a creative child. I was very introspective. And I was very, I don't know the word for it, but I, I was like really just fascinated by like my own psychology. And I would have really deep conversations as a pretty young kid. I was very intense, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that was shut down really to, in my mind, that was something that was not okay. I was called weird. I was called like crazy by my family because I was just like, so emotionally in tune. I think, you know, I would be like, Oh, let's talk about like, I was just very, and I, and I am that way. It's still how I am, but I suppressed it for a long time. And so the rest of my family is very logical. They're very performance oriented. And I was just not the same way. So I perceived myself and I was called out as being different. I think that I pushed down a lot of who I was. And so as a result, did not have a strong sense of self. And the eating disorder was, I think, a symptom of that. I don't know that it was the other way around. I think that it was the symptom of feeling like I couldn't be who I was and I didn't even know who I was. And this gave me a lot of identity. I later in my 30s, after the birth of my second daughter, became obsessed with clean eating and health because I was making their baby food and reading up. And it was orthorexia is just another is a new eating disorder and it's fueled by wellness culture and it just morphed and so these things became my identity I was known by like everyone as the healthy one so I think I just adopted this as my identity and I didn't really know myself outside of it which is why it was scary to let it go well, I know that a lot of people who are perfectionist yeah. are more prone to develop eating disorders. I don't know if that was true yeah. for you or not, but being a perfectionist, being hypercritical maybe of yourself yeah. or... Yeah, it's funny. When I hear the word perfectionist, I'm like, I'm not a perfectionist because I don't do things perfectly. <laughs> right. <laughs> but... right. <laughs> And I still think that I do know that I, I certainly per- perfectionism is is a coping skill, really. Of I follow someone who talks about perfectionism all the time. And she said, perfectionism is the attempt to control a situation that has previously traumatized you or like disturbed you in some way to such a degree that you want to make sure you never do that again. And so I think about that. And yes, that applies to me um, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I think that there's like a rigidity and a, an obsessiveness, you know, about getting certain things and making certain things look a certain way to feel safe that I do resonate with. And that is a lot of the work I had to do to overcome my own, my eating disorder for sure. It was, it was learning how to live in a gray area instead of in a black and white area. So what woke you up to, you've been in therapy for years. You were still dealing with the eating disorders. What was the shift? 
I can't say that there was one moment that was like this aha awakening. I think it was a collection of things. I was 38-ish. I had just had my third daughter. And the fact that they're all daughters did not escape me. I felt a huge (laughs) sense of responsibility for the fact that I was raising girls and yet I could not accept my own body and had this incredibly disordered relationship with food. My oldest was getting to an age where she was beginning to notice that there were certain days that I didn't eat anything and that there were other days that I, you know, my dinners were always different than hers. And as her awareness grew, because I could get away with it when she was little, but she started to notice and I could see her noticing and it made me really afraid. And I was also approaching 40 and felt like I'm about to enter another decade of my life and do this all over again. Because, you know, as a teenager, I was like, well, when I'm 20, I'll get it together, you know, and then you're almost 30 and you're like, well, in my 30s, it'll be different because I'll be older, of course, you know, this obviously will work itself out. And I recognized that this was not going to happen. And so that phrase, you know, insanity is repeating the same thing over and over and expecting different results was basically ringing in my ears. I, at the time, was a sugar detox coach. I coached people into orthorexia. (laughs) Basically, I I was very fear-mongering about GMOs and all these things that were taught to like, really like, this is so bad for us. It's so bad for us. Not realizing that like the, the stress of that itself is so bad for us. And so I began to feel like, oh, what I'm doing is wrong. What I'm doing is I'm making people afraid of fruit. Like I'm making people fear their food where they came to me and they weren't afraid. And I, all of this together, just kind of all of a sudden started weighing on me. And I saw an article that came out, it's called um, Smash the Wellness Industry. And it's a great article. And I came across it and I immediately rejected it. I was like, what? This is ridiculous because it completely dismantled everything that I had known and identified with. So I I'd rejected it. But it was the first time that I saw it myself for what I was and, and what I was doing. And it stayed in my head for like about another year. And I think it kind of just germinated in my mind. And all of this was happening at once. And I, I landed on a book as I approached my 40th birthday called The Fuck It Diet by Caroline Dooner. And... I just was like, I need to read this book. I'd heard about it. It was supporting all of the things that I you know, had, was beginning to think and feel. And I said, I'm going to read this book. And I, I read the book and the book is basically about how dieting ultimately increases our weight. But more than that, it also completely destroys our relationship with food. And that the only way out is to allow yourself to eat whatever you want. That's not really presented as a viable option in therapy or in traditional eating disorder treatment centers, that this is not what we're told that we, sh- we, we can do and we have permission to do. And I read that book. And on my birthday, I said, I'm starting this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to allow myself to eat whatever I want to eat. And I am not going to restrict myself. There's going to be no parameters. And I have never binged since. And I have never restricted since. And I've never purged since. So that book changed my life. But I do believe that I was set up already. I had kind of set up a lot of things to prepare me to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, it seems like you had an incredible amount of self-awareness ever since you were in college that you had a problem. Yes. I I was fully aware. There was no, oh yeah. I've never denied that I had an eating disorder. I think the only thing I did deny was the orthorexia. I didn't, I I thought I was just being a really responsible human (laughs) for, and who was someone who took really good care of my nutrition, but I didn't recognize that as a disorder. But other than that, yes, I I completely knew. And there's no denying when you're binging. I mean, there's no 
denying that this is an issue. So that was something I was comfortable with in terms of understanding that that's what was happening. Wow, that's amazing. That all that therapy. Uh, and it was a book. Yep, it was a book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. On your website, I went to your website, you said that there were times I even felt normal when I was with friends, snuggling with my yeah. babies or engrossed in a book. Most of the time, I felt ashamed, angry, and completely out of control. I hated my body and lived in fear of gaining weight. So mm. let's talk about what you do now, what you decided to do with this. So I was familiar with being a coach from my <laughs> sugar detox coaching days. And actually, I had gotten, a, I was an occupational therapist too. That was my job job, mm -hmm. uh, I suppose. I had done, I again, from having no sense of self, I never really knew what I wanted to do because I had wanted to write. And then I switched over to psychology and I became a, psych, a psychology researcher and then became an occupational therapist because I basically had no idea what I actually wanted to do. It was just like presented to me. And I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this, but it wasn't the most fulfilling job for me. I, occupational therapists are amazing and do wonderful things, but it just wasn't something that called to me. Mm -hmm. I kind of was just going through the process of be doing that. So once I recovered, which took a year, at least I couldn't believe. And to this day, there are times where I still wake up and think, I cannot believe that I am not doing that anymore. Like I cannot believe I got out. <laughs> And I just feel so passionate about the fact that if I could do this, that anyone could do it. I don't mean to say that anyone, I mean, there's an amount of privilege involved in being able to eat whatever you want and having that kind of accessibility. Something that I considered, I mean, I really thought I was just broken and, and that my genetic, my DNA was just flawed, that I was a food addict. I mean, I really just believe that. And the fact that I'm not just made me, I need to help people. Like I need to help people because I know there's other people out there who are in therapy <laughs> and in treatment centers and who are not actually doing the things that are going to help them get better. In some cases, yes, of course, that there is treatment that works. But I knew that there was a section of people that were like myself where it wasn't going to work and I wanted to help them. And I'm so passionate about that, that that, that just lit me up so much that I started my own business and it grew very quickly. And I, I do, that's what I do now as I, as I help people work through not only their recovery from binge eating, but also their body acceptance uh, because that's a wild ride too. <laughs> uh -huh. Did you have a hard time with that the first yes. year? Were you? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I hired a coach myself. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that was obviously, that was, that was the scariest thing about recovering because I had to gain weight to do so. I talk about it like, all of a sudden the scales tipped like 51 to 49 in, in favor of, I can't live this way anymore. It's that miserable against my fear of weight gain. So it was just like a percentage over by, by just a hair, but it was enough to open the door for me to be able to say, well, I'm willing to gain the weight if it means that I stop binging and restricting. So when I do work with people, that's the place where they're at, where they're actually just completely fed up with living that way. And, and that be, that's the most important thing to fix instead of losing weight or maintaining their weight. So have you been able to pinpoint what it is about all those years of therapy? What were you not getting out of therapy? Yes. So it's actually more biological. So it therapy focuses a lot on the mental and emotional aspects of healing. And all of those things are great, but it doesn't address the fact that in the background, your body is on a roller coaster that it perceives as a threat. So when you're binging, you are also 
in between the binges restricting. So because you eat all this food, you then make this, you know, grand decision that, well, tomorrow I'm not going to eat or I'm going to eat very little. And you do that and it becomes this pattern of binging with restricting, but your body sees that as a famine. And and so even though you may be gaining weight or have a completely reasonable quote unquote weight, your body because this is how we evolved to live in, you know, we evolved living in famines and then feasts, our body thinks we're in a famine when we restrict. And so it will then guide you towards more food, which results ultimately in the binge, and it will stock up and it will say, get all this food in, put on this weight, because we don't know when we're, we're going to be heading back to a famine. But the pattern seems to be that we go from feast to famine. So that becomes a biological response. And so we can't get out of the binge cycle if we are in famine mode because we are designed to seek out food when we're in famine mode. So the missing link was allowing all food no, and not trying to control it. And in that release of control, your body actually learns how to stabilize and regulate food. So instead of having to either eat none of it or all of it, it learns, oh, food is coming all the time. We are not in danger. We can relax. And it, it basically takes away that primal drive to binge, which is not a flaw. It's it's an adaptive biological response to deprivation. So in your case, you were able to adapt to that? In my case, therapy doesn't tell me that I can eat whatever I want, or they tell you that, but it's under certain conditions. It doesn't focus on this very primal response to mm -hmm. not eating. So I had to heal physiologically before I could heal emotionally and mentally. So that is the piece that's missing in therapy is that healing of the physiological piece where you can't respond to a binge by restricting, but that's what we're all doing. I mean, that's what people do. Even in dieting, it's like that you're overeating and then you respond by restricting. And that response of restriction is what drives your next binge every time. Mm -hmm. And breaking that cycle is the key was the key for me to healing i had to break the cycle of restriction but because we live in a in a culture that tells us we should be the smallest and we sh our portions should be as little as possible it's like well why would i ever think that i would respond to a binge by eating normally the next day like this is the cycle that you get into and so it's about breaking that cycle which mm -hmm. at my point had become so extreme and the process of doing that is causes waking and that's why nobody does it <laughs> So this is something that you have, after, you know, your year of healing, you realized about what was lacking in therapy then. Yeah, yeah, I could see it. After healing, I was like, I mean, it was so clear to me that that was the missing link. I mean, so clear. And I know that that's not what I was taught. And that isn't what any of us are really taught that that we have to eat more to stop binging. That's like, very counterintuitive. So and I get it. I get why that's counterintuitive. You know, yeah. I nobody says that. But it actually is what got me to stop. Yeah. So I'm curious about what role your husband played through all this. Was he aware of what was going on? Yes, I did not hide anything from him. He was well aware and he's extremely supportive. And I must have used him as like my own personal therapist, <laughs> in addition to my actual therapist, multiple times a day as I went through the healing process because I doubted it all the time and I was skeptical and I was afraid and I needed constant reassurance that I was doing the right thing and that if it didn't work, I would have other options and that my body was okay. And he just was like a, a sounding board for me to get through it. I don't know that I would have if, if I didn't have that. It was really important for me to have that support and to know that somebody had my back no matter what happened and that it was okay and to keep going. Oh, that's good. And that's something you didn't have when you were in college. No, exactly. Your own. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm also curious about the popularity of intermittent fasting right mm -hmm. now. 
Personally, I am an intermittent faster myself, but I don't have an eating disorder. So, yeah. And I'm aware of that. Occasionally, people will say, well, this is not for people with eating disorders. I'm wondering what kind of effect that has on people who have eating disorders. It is extremely damaging to people who have eating disorders. I can understand how someone who does not have a history of restriction, you know, of an eating disorder, you know, could adopt this and their body wouldn't freak out. Now, like in your case, you know, if you never put your body in a place where it felt like it was in danger by becoming anorexic or by going days and days without eating and by denying your hunger signals for 20 years. Your body doesn't feel threatened. And so your body is adapted to be able to handle a period of intermittent fasting without overreacting. A person who has had a history of an eating disorder or even a significant amount of disordered eating will not respond that way. So the physiological like effects of denying hunger or prolonged fasting will spark a chain of events that leads the body to feel like it has to put on. I call it, it's like calling 911 for when you stub a toe. So like your body will do that. It believes that this is a danger sign and it will react by sending out major hunger signals and the desire to binge, which is essentially what happens to a lot of people who have eating disorders who attempt to do intermittent fasting because at that point, I mean, it's being used for weight loss more than for the health benefits usually. Your body is smarter than that. And your body will say like, no, no, we've been here before. You're giving us, this is a famine coming. I'm going to stock up. So ultimately people believe that it's their fault that they can't maintain this schedule of intermittent fasting when really their body is designed to protect itself from that ever happening again. I'm also curious about, well, the reason that I was interested in intermittent fasting is because of my high cholesterol and A1C mm -hmm. numbers. Mm -hmm. So I'm more interested because of my health. So what do you advise if people are told they need to lose weight for health and they're at risk of developing eating disorders? That's a really tricky area. So intermittent fasting was actually developed specifically for people with diabetes. So it, the A1C right. and, and that, you know, is, is like a relevant sort of piece, but not for all of these other things that it's being touted for. And I think that there's a movement, I don't know if you've heard, called Health at Every Size, which has a lot of criticism. And there's many books you know, that are written about this that are not common knowledge, but that weight is not the demon that, that society has made it out to be and that you can be healthy and not have to lose weight. So that, for example, if, if you have cholesterol numbers, blood works off in some way. Well, there are ways to address your health that are found in behaviors that don't need to focus on weight loss. So for example, exercising is well known to improve health. So you can take up exercising and this may or may not result in weight loss, but the exercise itself is the health measure, is the health behavior that the data shows gives us greater health. Same for eating more fruits and vegetables, you know, having lower stress, not smoking, getting good sleep, having a sense of community and joy. So you're, you know, a sense of purpose in your life. All of these things are what the data actually show to be more associated with longevity. And that weight just gets all of this blame when you can address all of these health behaviors without necessarily even addressing weight. There are plenty of people. I mean, our bodies are diverse in terms of shape, size, and shape by nature, because we're all just different people and we have different ethnic backgrounds that are more disposed to being heavier or smaller. We don't give enough credit to the fact that these determinants of health are kind of outside of our control and that you can be in a larger body and still be engaging in behaviors that are 
very healthy, but you just may not lose weight because your body isn't designed to do that. This is something that I I recommend for anyone interested in this, the book Health at Every Size, and also the book Anti-Diet by Christy Harrison, which kind of debunks a lot of these studies that don't control for weight stigma. A lot of people in larger bodies are not given adequate healthcare treatment at the doctors because there are a lot of studies showing that doctors have their own inherent bias towards fat people and they're treated differently. So if, if a thin person walks into the doctor and says, oh my, I have a headache. The doctor will do the necessary things and to diagnose or to treat. And the fat person who walks into the office and says, I have a headache will be told to lose weight. And in some cases, miss out on really pertinent interventions that then become a brain tumor or something because they're just not given any credit that this is not weight related. Everything is weight related. Every, every health ailment is blamed on weight when it may not in fact be. And that you can treat a symptom or a health concern with a behavior and not with weight loss. Well, moving into another area of prejudice, I read your article in June 2020. You talked about fat phobia having its roots in racism, about how the acceptance of all bodies by color, size, or or otherwise is a gateway to dismantling fat phobia. And you committed to learning more about this. Can you share a little bit more about what you've learned, the connection between fat phobia and racism? Yeah, this was something I had absolutely no knowledge of prior to the incident with George Floyd last year, I had really no no knowledge of racism much to, at all, or my own implicit biases. There's a book, another book <laughs> called Fearing the Black Body. It's by Sabrina Strings. And this is the way that I began to understand the link between racism and fat phobia, which is basically that when slaves were brought to this country, we eventually needed a way to distinguish, or, or one thing, black bodies are naturally a lot denser. They're more muscle mass and their BMI is higher and they have larger bodies genetically. This is just uh, um, because we are a diverse species than white people. And so we began to see like, oh, how do we make the distinction between these black people who were not as worthy as white people at one time in our, you know, in in our societies by society's measure. And the way that the distinction began to get made between good and bad, white and black was body size. And so you know, black people were bigger, therefore we need to be smaller as white people. And that began because at one time in our history, being larger bodied was a sign of wealth and Mm -hmm. it was a sign of higher class and status because you had the money to afford food. So at one time it was, it was, it was cool to be fat (laughs) or it was like, it was, it was a good thing. Yeah. Like the Renaissance period. Yeah. 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 So then we see with, you know, with now the the racial divide in, in this country, it became black people are bigger, and they're also worse than us. So now fat is bad. And that that began this whole um, desire to separate black from white. And so it's sort of just evolved into our culture at this point, but the roots of it were there. And it's all setting up this whole idea, which you can then all of a sudden you like step away and you can see that being fat or thin in today's society is a way to, to divide people into better or worse, whether of, of any color at this point, but that that it started with this idea of division and separating good from bad or separating worthy from unworthy or separating, you know, attractive from it, it becomes this way of classifying ourselves. And that we see, I mean, you, we can't deny that happens now that thinner people are more right. revered, you know, I mean, they're just, it just is. And so right. you start to see these systems that and like the way that they're set up and yeah, it's, it's, it's like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like a really good book. Yeah, for uh, sure. To learn more about. I have noticed that there is less of a putting thin people on a pedestal, less of that in the black 
culture community than it is than in the white community, you know? I mean, I think that's the stereotype, although I am learning that there's actually more eating disorders in the Black community than we have been led to believe, uh, and that it's affecting young people quite a bit, but it's not being diagnosed because the system of diagnosis is more set up to, well, number one, their BMIs are higher, right? So uh, naturally they are, and so they don't meet criteria for anorexia, you know, because uh, even though the behaviors are exactly the same, or they're just not in a lot of cases, the medical care is not, doesn't acknowledge, I mean, it's just not looked yeah, for racism. so much and because yeah. of this. Yeah, it's racism. Mm-hmm. So it's actually not necessarily true that, um, that it's not prevalent in, in those communities. Yeah, interesting. It's, it's interesting to follow that. Yeah. I remember a, a woman that I used to know who preferred to be with black men, a white woman, because she felt like there was more acceptance mm. of her larger body. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, right. It's like the whole, the, the stereotypical, like, um, bigger butts thing, which now, by the way, is in, it's like, um, you know, having a larger rear end is like, cool. Right. Now. I know, um, so but <laughs> it's a genetic predisposition and for black bodies for uh-huh. sure. And, and right. I, I think there's a sense, and I don't want to speak for I'm, I'm white as day, but like, I, 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 it's almost like that there seems to be more in black communities, um, a desire to assert oneself and to, and to reject this idea of, uh-huh. fitting into this mold that has been set up by white people. And I think that that might lend itself to this, to us, you know, to a white person seeing a black person's confidence as being like, oh, well, they have more confidence. I don't know that it's confident. I mean, it is, but it's maybe born of feeling like, no, I reject this uh-huh. hierarchy that right. is based on oppressing me. Right. So, you know, it might yeah. come across as confidence, but it might be almost rebellion. Yeah. And, you know, I think in this particular woman's case, she felt much more loved for her curves, you know? Yeah, they're appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So thinking back to my college roommate, it was my first exposure to anyone with an eating disorder. I was put into a new dorm with her and she had specifically requested not to be with any of her friends. She wanted a new roommate. She wanted a new start. Thankfully, my mom was actually at the time was a therapist. She worked in the psychiatric ward with eating disorder patients. So mm. she was able to, you know, give me some coaching that my roommate, she did not want to be around her friends because her friends yeah. were constantly asking her about what she was eating. <laughs> they, were, ah. they were, I mean, they were worried about her, but they were yeah. obsessing about it. And so my mom said to me, you know, what I would really do is just talk to her about other things, talk to her about yeah. how she's feeling, you know, and, and not focus on the eating at all. So my question for you is what would you advise to friends and family members of people who have eating disorders? What would have been helpful for you with your friends and your family members? Mm, That is a good actual, uh, actually a good piece of advice because like I was describing, it becomes your identity. And once you don't want that anymore and you want to break free of that, you need to understand that you are seen as something other than your eating disorder. So to be a safe space to be who you are. I mean, that sounds so cliche, but really to be a place where you, where you guys are friends and it doesn't have to do with this thing. But also at the same time, for me, I felt like my friends and I, and I have really good friends and there were times that they would, you know, of course, out of concern, talk about it. And I didn't want to, but they were also a place where I knew that no matter, I mean, my weight really fluctuated throughout all of this and they never, I mean, it just didn't matter. I mean, they were just a safe place for me to be me. And 
I, they were also a, a reprieve from the thinking about it all and the stressing about it all. So, I mean, I didn't want anyone to fix me. And I think the tendency, I don't know about my friends, but I think for my husband, like for a partner, there's a tendency to want to fix the problem. And I think that a person who is struggling is doing a lot of that work and you, you're not going to think of anything that they haven't thought of and to just be supportive and to just listen and to just be someone who, if, if they bring it up to you, to listen and just like sympathize instead of trying to fix it or give advice um, or, you know, to to incessantly talk about it. I think knowing that your friends are there as like a, a, a steady, reliable rock is probably for someone with an eating disorder who feels like their life is t- constantly upside down and there is no stability or sense of groundedness. A friend can be that something that they're otherwise really lacking. It was interesting because I felt like it was a huge elephant in the room. She didn't talk about it. And she was obsessively exercising before bed and she was dangerously thin. It was odd. I didn't know her very well. So I didn't, and I'm not like prone to pry, (laughs) you know, so I didn't want to ask her about it, but it was, it it was a struggle for me to know how to support her, Mm. how, you know, so that's a, that's tricky. Yeah, I can, you know, it's not a perspective that I, that I know because I've been the one with the eating disorder, but but I can appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, How how that would feel. That that might be a good topic for an article. (laughs) Yeah, I'm thinking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Also for people who, you know, often when people who are, who are significantly overweight, a lot of people who think they're being helpful will give them Mm. advice. It's like, you know, these, this person does not need to know. (laughs) Yeah. That, you know, that they're overweight. They know that already. They yeah. feel shame about it. It's not helpful in any way to give advice. Not to at someone, all. You know? mm-hmm. So anyway. <laughs> not even <So>. a little. <laughs> yeah. So do you still struggle with the, with these issues or have you, do you feel like you're, you're mostly no. processed? I feel so free. I feel, um, no, I do not struggle with these issues anymore. And I, I wouldn't do this work if I did. My life opened up after I healed. I, I realized all, I guess all these years I had to catch up with in terms of like getting to know myself and following a passion and like finding self-esteem in new things was like continues to, to be a journey for me. And like, I feel like I'm one of the, my only friends who's so excited to be in my forties and like, look forward to my 50. Like, I feel like I have a lot of living to do. And I embrace it. I feel like, wow, when you don't live that way, how freeing that is. And I I don't take that for granted. I'm so happy for you. Well, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. And so on a lighter note, since we've been talking about food, what are your favorite foods? What do you like Uh, to eat now? What do you enjoy now that you might not have before? Yeah, that I'm not binging on it anymore. I actually enjoy it. So I used to eat like sushi as a way to restrict. And now I actually enjoy sushi for what it is. Mm. But other things like ice cream was something that I only binged on. I did not know how to eat it like a normal (laughs) person. Like I I only knew how to restrict or binge it. And now it's in my freezer. So Mm -hmm. mint chip ice cream is one of my favorite desserts. I love that too. Yeah. Oh, it's my, I love it. Love it. And, um, pasta like I eat pasta now like just just like without binging on it I would say again I'm Italian so I I have a strong affinity for pasta and I can now enjoy it I think I would say maybe that's the one food that I am so really grateful that I can eat now and it's fine because I didn't think that was a possibility that's good have you seen that movie Big Night no well being an Italian you probably would enjoy it <laughs> oh yeah, I don't and, know it. Yeah, it's, a, it's Stanley Tucci is one of the actors. I don't remember who the other yes. guy is, 
two brothers who have an Italian restaurant, I think in the 50s. But okay. it's a, yeah, it's really a wonderful movie about food. And oh, I'll look into it. Yeah. And leading into my next question, have you read or watched anything recently that has inspired you? Well, things inspire me all the time in terms of reading. I actually, um, I just started a book club that focuses on a lot of what we talked about, a lot of the books that I just mentioned. That's always inspiring. But like, I've been watching a lot of shows recently. I just watched The Queen's Gambit. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Oh, I loved it. I don't know that it inspired me, but it was, uh-huh. it, I really enjoyed it. You know what I'm reading right now is, so you want to talk about race, which is just furthering oh, yeah. my, have you read that or heard of it? It's, um, I have heard of it. I follow her on, on social media, but I don't think I've read that one yet. It's really good. And it, it actually plays into what we started this conversation talking about where the conversations I'm having with my family now who uphold a system of dominance and subdominance um, in terms of like gender roles, but how to have and which also then translates to race, how I'm having these conversations with my family, who my views are so incredibly different from that this book sort of talks about how to talk about this with your family. And it has been an inspiration for me to see that, you know, there's areas of my own attempts at communication that I could, I could modify and um, probably need to, to be an effective communicator around these things. Mm. So yeah, that sounds like a good recommendation for me too. (laughs) It's great. It's great. So think back to yourself and, age 21, or maybe 18, what would you say to her now? Oh, I would tell her it's going to be okay. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that there's, there is a way out. I would also really encourage her to try to allow all foods a lot sooner to spare her. My personality, the way that I actually was, like authentically, was all right. And that it was actually going to serve me well. And I didn't need to hide it anymore. Owning who you are authentically and not being afraid of it. Is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? I meet a lot of people like this in my work, even clients that I've had or other coaches and therapists. I read their stories even on social media. There is a um, an eating disorder therapist on Instagram that I follow who is in a wheelchair. She has MS. And she is extremely successful in her business and she doesn't let her diagnosis which is has now basically she's she's pretty much wheelchair ridden stop her in any way and that's an, an area that I had never really looked at before and I find her to be an inspiration in that sense oh and now as I'm speaking one of my best friends who supported me during my entire recovery I mean I've been friends with her since high school had a brain aneurysm and is now in a wheelchair and has three kids and they didn't even think she was going to make it at one point and now she is raising her children from her wheelchair and you can't help but look at someone like that and think wow like I don't know that I could do that I don't know that I have the resilience but she does and um, yeah that's an inspiration for sure her name is Laura shout out to Laura shout out to Laura keep it up (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been just a really wonderful, enlightening conversation, Stephanie. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It was this yeah. went really fast. So <laughs> good. Thanks. Well, keep doing that work that you're doing and enjoy the snow. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> I will. Have a great All right. day. I really enjoyed my conversation with Stephanie and I learned a lot about eating disorders and the ways that therapy can really be lacking in helping people conquer their eating issues please go to my website for more information about Stephanie and her business. In addition to photos and other details, go to www.fertilegroundcommunications.com and look for the podcast tab. Do you know someone with a grit and resilience story who would be great to interview? I'd love to hear from you. 
Next week, I interview Brigitte Ayoub, who is a first-generation American daughter of two Palestinian immigrants. She grew up experiencing the challenges of finding her place as an American with Arab roots. Right after leaving her corporate job to start her own business in April 2018, her dad died, and then her mom was diagnosed with leukemia the following year. Brigitte believes that we have two choices every day to sit and lament or face the adversity with courage and choose to lean into it. She has chosen the latter option. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fellow Ground podcast. If you liked today's episode, please visit our Patreon page and learn how to support us. You can also subscribe and leave a review. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fellow Ground Communications. Mm-hmm.